The Crux of the Matter, Episode 24, The Public Pastor. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors for pastors. This is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Professor Scott Stigmeyer. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful day in Southern California. It's a beautiful day in Southern Cal. It's a beautiful day in Northern Cal. We are uh, we are just rolling right along here. Uh, we rolling are kind of, in the sunshine. Rolling in the sunshine. We are kind of in the midst of a, a marathon recording session here, uh, trying to record several episodes so that uh, so that while I'm on vacation and you're in the middle of unpacking and everything, we can take a week or two off from recording. But uh, but it should be uh, it should be all good, and I am quite confident, Scott, that we have our act together. Don't you think? As well as we ever do. Oh, I hope better than that because that's not saying that. much. Um, so our topic for today is uh, uh, is the public pastor, and we may come up with a better title than that. But uh, why don't you uh, start us off with this, Scott? Well, in the last couple of days, it was announced that uh, the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida, this is uh, Tulian Tavijan, he has resigned from his parish or his church as the as the head pastor there due to an adulterous affair that he has committed. It's an interesting thing because Tulian is a um, sort of a celebrity in the pastor world. And in the evangelical world, he's he's a grandson of none other than Billy Graham. And he is the succeeding pastor at Coral Ridge to Dr. James Kennedy, who is responsible for the Kennedy Explosion Evangelism Program from the 70s and 80s, which was so huge. Um, and Kennedy uh, was a very key factor in the development of the religious right and uh, involved with Jerry Falwell and so on and so forth with the moral majority. So for Tulian's in the spotlight already. I mean, he is in a very prestigious position in the evangelical world. What makes him interesting, one of the things that makes him interesting is that he's also discovered in his ministry and in his studies Lutheran theology and a particular part of Lutheran theology, law and gospel. He's read C.F.W. Walter's classic text, the proper distinction between law and gospel, and he refers to it often. He also refers to other Lutheran writers like John Pless and Harold Sinkbile, uh, current Missouri Synod Lutheran thinkers. So that's definitely attracted attention. Some people negatively, some people have accused him of being crypto-Lutheran, and other Lutherans have maybe been a little bit too undiscriminating in terms of you know, endorsing him and bringing him into conferences. And didn't he just recently speak at our flagship seminary in St. Louis? I think he was at a, at a conference there. Yeah. A couple, three months ago, maybe something like that. Yeah. It seems like I read about that. And so his, his fall brings up lots of questions and, and it does, we're not, we're not happy. I mean, this is in no way, um, us rejoicing in the fall of a brother, we are we're sad for for Tulian. We're sad for his family and for his congregation. Uh, this kind of thing occurs, and when it does, it is devastating and can be detrimental to people for many years. And we are very sad to hear any time a pastor or anybody uh, commits a sin like this. But it seems like when a pastor commits a public sin, um, especially a, sin, a sexual sin, it seems like. 
the the repercussions are different than if it was just a normal layperson committing uh, adultery or getting a divorce. Don't you think, Tom? I mean, what's the difference between this type of a sin that's publicly known? I don't mean sort of you know what people do behind their closed doors. We're not bedroom policemen, but if 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 it becomes publicly known that a member of your church is committing adultery. Is quite different than if a if a pastor is is publicly known as an adulterer. Why is that different? What do you think? Well, it. I wish that there was a nice kind of a simple answer to this, and, and if there is, I look forward to hearing it. But uh, essentially, I think that it has to do with scandal, in, in the biblical sense of the term scandal, and the concept of a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. That uh, that when a pastor commits a a public a public sin, and that is a that is a biblical category. That's not that's not something that is simply um, that's sort of randomly or arbitrarily done, but a sin that is that is known publicly in the community. Um, when a pastor commits a a, a public sin. Uh, that is that serves as a stumbling block or a scandal to the community, uh, then the question becomes, is his continuing to serve as a pastor, and, um, maybe first of all as a pastor in any congregation, but also as a pastor in this specific place, um, how does that, how does the, the life and activity of that pastor affect the preaching of the gospel in this place? And, and as Lutherans, I, I don't know, Scott, I, I always feel like we have a real tension with this. And, and I, can, I can hear the thoughts and in, in my own anxiety over these thoughts kind of running through my head. And that is, on the one hand, you do have, you do clearly have the, the biblical uh, qualifications for the office of pastor. We see them in Timothy and Titus and many other places in the scriptures. Um, and so we get that. And on the other hand, you've got the, the, uh, the seminal example of St. Paul. If St. Paul can be an apostle, then anybody should be able to be a pastor. <laughs> Basically, if you're going to let the public murderer of Christians become a pastor, then it should all be okay. And then well, and, and, may I and, respond? Oh, by all means. Fire away. <laughs> I, I you know, I mean I, I get it and I know what you're going after and I feel the same same tensions. But I think someone will quickly point out that, you know, Paul wasn't committing murder after he was called by the Lord Jesus. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think that he can he can easily say he was unregenerate, you know, I mean, this, this was a time when he didn't know the Lord Jesus and in fact opposed the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I do think that makes a difference. I do think that you can take a guy who's been to prison, you know, for all sorts of crimes and, um, and even murder. Yes, even murder. I think you can take someone who's, who has um, committed something, something terrible. And if you give them you know, once they've become a Christian, I think that if enough time has elapsed, you might be able to put them into service in some way in the church. But if someone is in the church and currently serving as a pastor, and then they 
perform, you know, do something great at. I think they have to, there has to be some action, whether that means, and let me, let me tell you why I think that for one reason, one is a kind of a semi-personal reason, not because I've done anything like this, but in my former parish, and I won't go into any specifics or details, but um, in a parish I once upon a time served, um, I had a predecessor who had a fall and he did not leave. He stayed. And, right. and it, I, I followed him and I would say that the damage that was caused by his remaining was far worse than had he, you know, than, than the sin itself. Um, you know, because there was so much bitterness, there was so much distrust, there was such a negativity. And, and now we got over that and there was healing and the Lord blessed it. And it wasn't because of me, but it was because largely because of time and just distance. Sure. But, um, you know, you can't, I don't, I think once you've broken trust with someone, you can't continue in that p- same position. Um, whether that means you're banned for life, um, well, you know, we might debate that, but you certainly, I feel, you certainly can't continue as if nothing happened. And, you know, I think there are those who would say that. In fact, that's why he stayed, is that there were people who supported him and wanted him to stay because right. we forgive. Yep. We forgive and forget. Yep. But that is not the point. You know, it's not a matter of whether he was forgiven. It was a matter of whether he was qualified for the office. Well, and, and let, so let me play yeah. the I'm not going to say the devil's advocate, but let me uh, let let me play the other side here with you. We can have a have a bit of a debate on this for a bit. Um, okay. Every pastor, every pastor, every human being, but every pastor sins continually. Oh, sure. Every, uh, I mean, we all sin, we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. Um, and every pastor sins publicly in the sense that, um, you know, my, it is not as though my sins are always and only hidden. You know, I mess up with my parishioners. I, uh, you know, I, I, it, there certainly are things that I do that are public. And so in any context, there has to be a relationship between the parish and the pastor of, of mutually living under, under the cross and under the forgiveness of sins that, that we do have to uh, bear one another's weaknesses and, um, and in and in love cover cover each other's sins. You know, love covers a multitude of sins, as St. John says. So what so how is it then that that my sins of uh, my sins of weakness, that my the the sins that I commit every day, um what makes those sins any different than the then I'll say, then the big sins, quote unquote. And, um, and there's no, no question in my mind, at least there's no question that, uh, we tend to put sexual sins into a uniquely egregious category for pastors, whether you're talking about adultery, pornography, um, any, any kind of sexual sin is, is is held up as uh 
unforgivable isn't quite the right term, but we certainly view those as a worse sin, I think, than almost any other, almost worse than than false doctrine in some respects. Uh, Why? Why is it that some that, um, you know, my my laziness, my failure to my failure to act, my inability to to respond in a timely and reasonable fashion to people's concerns, what my losing my temper at a meeting or whatever it is? Why is it that those sins are okay, and and yet this the sexual sin that's that's not allowed? My response is that um, you've kind of answered your own question. There, there is a hierarchy of sin, and it, it's not in terms of our standing before God because we're not talking about that. Our standing before God, you know, we know that any infraction of the law is the breaking of the whole law. One is either perfect before God and righteous, or one isn't. And, um, you know, so, so there is no hierarchy in terms of our sinfulness or our justification before God himself. But in terms of our relationships with each other, there absolutely is a hierarchy of sin and how we break one another's heart, how we break one another's trust, the damage to our relationships with each other, um, you know, some sense like, you know, definitely if I murder my neighbor, my relationship to him is changed differently. <laughs> Fair enough. Than if I than if I hate him. Yet our Lord Jesus is quick to point out that hating is equivalent to murder in front of God. So you know, in front of God, I can hate my brother or I can murder my brother, but in front of God, you know, there is almost no ethical distinction, no moral right. distinction. Right. But in terms of consequences, in terms of our relationships with each other, there's a high, there's a difference. And sexual sin, as the Bible, you know, the Bible never specifically says sexual sin is worse than other sins, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, it, the way it treats human sexuality is as, as different than certain other sins. You know, I mean, like some of the sins that we're, you know, you were mentioning, losing your temper or, you know, anger is definitely highlighted as a deadly sin for sure in the church. Yep. But, you know, I mean, St. Paul compares, um, now he's, he goes off to talk about things like homosexuality, but I think that, you know, if you read first Corinthians or if you read Romans, um, you'll find that he kind of keeps sinful, you know, our, our sexuality in terms of the sins that we commit sexually, whether they are heterosexual or homosexual can be compared to things like idolatry. Like you were pointing out yesterday from that verse or the last time we recorded or a future time we recorded, whichever uh, the case may be, um, that from anyway, if you, you'll point out from a, a verse in Jude that, that, that certain sin is compared to the fall of, of the, angelic species, right? Um, there is something about, you know, I always think of that first Corinthians chapter six verse where Paul says the body is meant for the Lord. And what does that mean? The body is meant for the Lord. I don't think he's talking about celibacy, you know, that we're not, that we're supposed to devote ourselves bodily to Jesus in that way. But that, that in terms, because he's talking in that when he says that, he's talking about adultery. He's talking about combining yourself with a, or merging with a, with a prostitute. It's in that section where he's talking about, you know, the, 
the, the flesh and the, you know, the, the, you know, joining in one fleshness. And so he says, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So there is something about sinning with your body in a way that, that affects us has a deep, and, and I, I would argue, and I know that sometimes, you know, people would disagree with a fine point here, but I would argue that it has to do with our creation in the image of God. Hmm. That our creation in the image and likeness of God is a sexual reference because it's talking about male and female. And male and female, he created them in the image and likeness of God. So my, my understanding of what the image of God is in part, small, you know, one part of a bigger thing is that it, you know, that we are created to give ourselves in love to another in a life giving union. And that, 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 that giving in a lifelong union, you mean? Well, life-giving union, gotcha. um, because it, it, in, it, well, because it produces life. Right. Life is oh, often gotcha, produced. Gotcha. Yeah, life is produced by the giving of oneself wholly to another in love, and I think that that is part of that. In some way, is an echo of what the Holy Trinity is. It's an echo of the image of God. So, so I think that sexual sins do well. You know. Look, there but for the grace of God goes all of us. Um, I'm, not, I'm not standing in judgment over Tulian or any other. I have no grounds to judge. I, I, and I speak to myself as much as to the next man. But I think, that, I think that sexual sin, especially when it is, there is something about it being publicly known. As, I think it's the scandal effort, uh, you know, asset that you were mentioning before, aspect that, you know, if, if a person has broken that kind of trust. Now, there, this isn't always black and white. There are gray areas. You know, does, do, does that mean, um, you know, does every sexual sin mean banning for life um, public? Because, you know, there are, there's a difference between, you know, a pastor might be arrested for uh, child pornography or soliciting a prostitute. Uh, a pastor might be not arrested because it's not criminal, but might be found out with, um, porno- you know, non, not child pornography, but pornography, um, either on his computer or some other thing. Right. Uh, or he might be committing an affair, a sexual adulterous affair with a member of his congregation. You know, any of those things, do they all, you know, do, are there any different levels of, of punishment, so to speak, or penalty right. or... Perhaps I don't know. I, and you know, are there I mean, any I don't know levels of public. Maybe that's that's a good point too. Maybe there's maybe there's different levels of terms of what kind of because look, even um, in the you know in the early church, they were quick to recognize that that people who had fallen under you know had apostatized should be allowed back in church. But I don't know that those. I don't know my church history well enough to know if that meant that if priests who apostatized. Well, I guess it does. You know, if we think of the Donatist controversy, these were priests who were coming back right. after having apostatized, and the Donatists were saying that their sacraments were invalid. Right. And right. the Orthodox position was that their sacraments were valid. And so, so here we had a case of people who had apostatized and had repented and were accepted back in, in, their, in office. So I don't know if I would say that that certain sins mean that you can never ever serve the Lord in any public way, but there definitely needs to be some kind of, some kind of separation and, and some kind of um, period of discipline. This brings up so many subjects. 
It really does. You know, and it is such it really, a, it brings up a hundred things. Yeah. And, and of course I would, um, I, I would argue that the, even the very concept of public today, uh, takes mm-hmm. on a whole different meaning than public 30 years ago, certainly more than a hundred years ago. Today, everything can be known everywhere on earth in minutes. Yeah. And so once something is public in any sense, it is almost as if it is completely public and yeah. which, which does make the whole matter that much harder and that there are kind of no secrets anywhere. Um, and that's a, and that, that is a real challenge. Now, in a, in a case with Tulian, but I don't, I don't think that it would certainly wouldn't have to be limited to him. Um, and, and I can hear the conversations. I can see the conversations that's coming is, you know, here's a man that is incredibly gifted. That is, that is bright, that is talented, that seems to have a, uh, a, a growing understanding of God's grace and mercy and that it would be criminal to, to silence that voice simply because he, he fell. Isn't this a time when we can show grace and see that this person, uh, continues to, uh, continues to serve? Now, I, I do think that there is a bit of a, there's a bit of a fallacy. Uh, I'll say a vocational fallacy that is often put in place here too. And that is to, to serve God as a pastor is a, is a specific vocation. It is, however, not the only way one serves God. Um, to serve God as a pastor, first of all, means to, um, before that also means as the, as, as one who is baptized, as, uh, and as someone who is a husband and a father, that these vocations are, are gift. These vocations are given, um, in many instances prior to becoming a pastor. I think I would argue that being a husband and a father is more important than being a pastor. That it is more central to my identity than being a pastor. And so if I am, uh, uh, and so if I commit a sin that disqualifies me from the office of the ministry, this does not mean that I am no longer human. (laughs) Duh. Mm -hmm. This doesn't mean that I'm going to hell. This doesn't mean that I can't receive God's gifts. This doesn't, this doesn't mean any of those things. What it does mean is that I can't serve as a pastor anymore. And, and again, others can debate on, are, are we talking about a lifetime ban or are we talking about, uh, I, I, I honestly don't know the answers to those, Scott. I, I yeah. don't. Um, and yeah. I, and I pray for, anyone who is in a position of leadership that has to make those decisions uh, over another person, because boy, howdy, that is not someplace I would want to be or do. But, uh, but there does have to, 
we do have to recognize that uh, that saying that someone is not qualified for an office is not making a value judgment on their worth before God. I would say, and, and I'm going to go way out on a limb here, Scott, I would say that a woman is not qualified ontologically to be a father. True. That that is that that is ontologically impossible for her. Now, obviously, that that is not saying that she is of less worth before God or before anyone else. In the exact same way, a man is ontologically not qualified to be a mother or a wife. And so there are different vocations. There are different stations or places where God puts us. And if those stations or places change, as they do sometimes, uh, that is not a, that is not a value judgment on the person. That's kind of a part of uh, all of these vocations are voc- that we're talking about here: husband, wife, father, mother. These are all earthly vocations. As I would add, is the vocation of pastor. I am not mm-hmm. expecting sure. to be a pastor in heaven. I don't know about you. No. Um, my vocation will not be necessary. There will be no place for it. I will have no sins to forgive. <laughs> and boy, howdy. I don't know about you, but that brings me joy. <laughs> it really yeah. does. Um, and so these are all that we are talking about are earthly vocations that do ebb and flow, that change, given the time, the circumstance, the place. And and maybe the question that we should ask is, how do we as pastors serve the brother who has uh, who has committed a scandal in the church? Yeah, because that I think is a is a is maybe the bigger question. Because this is, uh, and again, I'm not talking about uh, specifically about Tulian here, um, uh, whom I've never met. I don't know. Um, but that is the question that any pastor, we know the burden that this office bears, the pressure that this office puts on a person, the te- the many and various ways that Satan seeks to tempt and destroy this person. Uh, every pastor, they are, they are myriad. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that man who has, uh, who, who has committed this sin, he is, he is in need of grace and mercy and compassion, not judgment. He has plenty of judgment. I am quite confident of that. Um, so maybe that's a, that, that's probably a question that would be worth our asking is how do you actually serve someone as a pastor that, that has fallen in this way? Well, and as others have pointed out eloquently, I think that it appears that everybody that's involved is doing what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, he did resign. Uh, the leaders of his church have talked to him, and um, presumably he is working with his wife to reconcile. Um, you know, hopefully they are receiving some kind of therapy and counseling. I mean, it's a long haul, and, you know, it's 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 – you know, I pray for them. I pray that God will help them out. It does appear, though, that, that you know, it, it's not a case of, you know, like Jimmy Swagger or something. It's like, well, I had this tearful confession, and you should forgive me and get over it. You know, he, he stepped down, 
And so I, you know, what else? I think that that was the right move. Um, He does understand apparently. So let's, let's um, pray for the best. Pray for the best and uh, give the man space and space. And honestly, this happens in our midst, not every single day, but on a very, very regular basis. Um, All you have to do is look in the back of the Lutheran witness and every single month you're going to see a so-and-so and and -and so-and-so and -and so-and-so removed from the roster of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate that are no longer eligible for a call. That there are pastors that, um, that, that have, uh, that have, that resign or are removed, uh, all the time. And sometimes justly, sometimes unjustly, which is a whole nother topic that we should probably tackle at some point. Um, and more than anything else, as pastors, our, our vocation in that place is going to be to, uh, to show mercy to them and to their family. And to seek to care for them, um, very often what happens, and at least in my observation, I'm perfectly willing to be wrong on this, is when a public sin is committed, the person becomes a pariah. They become yeah. they they be, because they are a scandal. Then then they will lose they will lose friends. They will no one will talk to them. They will they will become uh, a non entity and. Uh, and that is, uh, uh, and that is equally problematic just, and, and maybe that's, that's another part of this is just because I continue to, uh, befriend someone and, and count them as a friend doesn't mean that I believe that they shouldn't be a, that they, that they should be able to become a pastor again right away. I mean, right. I, I mean, again, this is a big shock, Scott, but I have all kinds of friends who are sinners yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. all of my friends see me as a sinner too. And that's, and so there is no difference there. That is not a matter of, of, uh, of friendship. It is a matter of vocation. And it is also a matter of that is not my decision to make. I am not sitting in judgment over this person unless that is my vocation. And I, and uh, frankly, I pray that it won't be. Right, right, right. Well, these things are complex. I mean, these things, and we're dealing with relationships. And, you know, I'm sure that Tulian has and will lose friends over this, like you pointed out. Um, others will rally to him and hopefully um, apply great law and gospel to him. And, uh, and he'll, he'll hear that and receive that. Um, you know, undoubtedly, his sin is of such a nature that... I mean, let's assume that his wife's best friend is not going to be his great advocate. You know, right. you know right. let's assume that because, you know, the, you know, there are people that love her, too. You know, that's right. You know, and so and so there are going to be people that are kind of, oh, no, you know, how, how can I remain? It's just complicated. We have to we have to just entrust this to God, I think. Yeah. And I'm not just referring to him. I mean, I think that. Anytime we're talking about the breaking of a trust or a public sin, there are many parties involved. There might be children involved. There might be innocent parties involved. If there is such a thing as an innocent party, uh, you know, everybody, it takes two to tango. And every time there's a, a conflict, you know, you can argue that, that there's, you've contributed something to that. If, you know, and so, I mean, who of us is really guilt free in terms of the, the problems that we, inter- that we experience with others? Yeah. So, it's, None of us are guilt-free. And I would, I, 
I would also add, uh, just maybe as a way to kind of start to wrap this up here, uh, I would also add that a case like uh, a case like this and others similar to it uh, also can ser- can be instructive for us as pastors on how we are to deal with care and mercy in our own congregation with those who are struggling with sin. Um, this is a case that is super public, but uh, I mean, I certainly have families that have that have gone through uh, all kinds of scandals and trials and marriage and with children and all kinds of things happens in every congregation that I've ever seen or been a part of. And and as a pastor, I have the opportunity to bring grace and mercy into that into that incredibly broken and screwed up situation. And if I come into it from the persi- from the from the position simply of of um, self righteous judgment, mm-hmm. then I am not going to be serving these people. Uh, it, I do have a a pl- there is a place for judgment, and and it is always a matter of vocation to determine if it is your place there to offer that judgment um and and never to assume that vocation when it is not yours to take True. does that make does that make sense scott yeah yeah very good 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 well i realize this has uh, been a slightly less uh uh whimsical and uh and uh lively conversation but i think this is an important one a good one for us to talk about so thanks for suggesting it scott well, and it's on everybody's mind, at least, you know, not at least a lot of the pastors that may listen to this program right. are discussing it and thinking about it. Right, right. And we are we try oh so hard to be timely. So yeah. we'll re- we'll release yeah. this in about late August and it should be fine. <laughs> right. So you can find the show notes to this episode at the crux of the matter dot net slash podcast slash twenty four. And if you have any other thoughts on this uh, on this episode, please uh, please write us feedback at the crux of the matter dot net, or if you want to write one of us individually, Scott at the crux of the matter dot net, or Todd at the crux of the matter dot net, we'll get those. Um, or you can just use the feedback form as you find it on the web page. Uh, I hope that uh, I hope that you will consider doing so. And uh, since we've had a little bit of uh, sadness to talk about here, it seems appropriate that we discuss a little bit of joy. So, Scott, what's bringing you joy today? Okay, well, this is something that is not necessarily tied to today because it's something, it's a book and it's a series of books that I read actually a couple of years ago. But I'm bringing it up today because either in a past episode or a near future episode, uh, <laughs> we will have been talking about... Is that like uh, a future blue perfect or something? I think that's what I'm trying for, is uh, there will have been discussion about uh, young adult literature that is dystopian, and why is that? And there's so many so many of the series, like you know, The Hunger Games or Divergent or The Maze Runner. Right. Um, but one that I read a few years ago that is a dystopian future YA series, but also has, as these often do, but this one more so than others, has a lot of social commentary that I think is interesting and worth pursuing. And it's a series called Uglies. Have you heard of it? I haven't. It's by, 
Scott Westerfield. Um, the novels, I think, are Uglies. Then the second one, I think, is called Pretties. And then maybe the third one is Normals. And then there's the last one is Extras. And the premise of this is actually inspired by uh, a 50-year-old oh, story by a guy named Charles Beaumont. Charles Beaumont wrote an episode of The Twilight Zone that was called Number 12 Looks Just Like You. Well, anyway, this is what... I remember that what, episode. Yeah, oh, this yeah. is what inspired... Well, so Scott Westerfield read that story, saw that Twilight episode, and wrote this whole series of novels on this. And it, it's, it's set in the future. You don't know kind of what has happened. And... When you reach a certain age, everyone, I think it's 18 or, you know, when you reach 18, everybody goes, undergoes surgery to make you glamour model, magazine cover, gorgeous. Hmm. Every person. And you get to have choices between maybe, you know, half a dozen or a dozen different looks. But, but there's going to be a real homogenization. So there's nobody that's ugly. Everybody is physically beautiful. And there is a resistance to that. There are those who resist it. Interesting. And, and it follows this young girl. It follows this young woman who, who doesn't want to undergo the surgery and she wants to keep her individuality. And why does she want that? And, you know, and what it does is it puts light, it casts light on our society's emphasis on physical attractiveness. And I think it does so, especially since these are targeted towards young adults, I think it's very effective and is helpful to us as we want to try to help people have it doesn't is like you like you will have pointed out it does it, it does not involve religion in any way and how they get away with how they do this i mean it seems like you ought to at least have someone somewhere be have some church or something but these things very very seldom do have any religious component to them and this is no exception but it has a very basic ethical and social um ethic, I shall say, that I think is useful. So I recommend it. Uglies is the series by Scott Westerfield. The first novel is called Uglies. It's a quick read. You'll love it. Hmm. Good. Good. I will put that on my list. Very good. good. And I will uh, pass it along to my daughters as well. They're the young adult readers around here. Um, what I'm going to, what I'm going to do is, uh, for my joy bringer is a TV series that I've uh, been watching. Um, I've been flying solo here at the house for a few days in preparation for vacation. So while I'm trying to uh, clean the house or I've been a little under the weather, been trying to get better, etc. I've been watching a, uh, a television series called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Have you watched any of these, Scott? Are you familiar with I, that? I have watched it some. Yeah. Um, I like it. It's a it's a fun series. The uh, second the second uh, the second season just came out on Netflix Netflix lot, not long ago. It kind of provides some interesting backstory and kind of future story side story for the whole Marvel universe. So you're going to find tie-ins to. Thor to Iron Man to Captain America to the Avengers movie to all of those and and it's well done it's a it's a TV series so it doesn't have the same kind of uh, level of a polish and boom bang stuff that you're going to get in a big blockbuster movie but it's very well done and uh, and I'm enjoying it a lot it's sort of a I don't know it's like a cross between uh, it's got some science fiction elements, but it also has a lot of almost a, a sort of a spy 
kind of a spy series. Do you ever watch that BBC series called MI5? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, That's it's, so it's got a little bit of that, maybe a little bit of uh, Kiefer Th- Sutherland's 24 put in, that kind of that kind of thing. I enjoy it. Um, I've, I've been watching episodes of that for the last few days, and it's been fun. So that's been what's bringing me joy of late. Wonderful. Yeah. So, Scott, anything else for the uh, for the good of the assembly here today? No, I have no no other thoughts. No other thoughts. And with that, I think that we will close up here. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time.